You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hey, this is John Amble. I'm the Editorial Director at MWI, and we're turning the tables a little bit for this episode. Regular listeners are used to hearing John Spencer as the host, but today I'm taking over that job and he's going to be the guest. Typically, John talks to his guests about their research and their practical experience related to urban warfare, but he has a ton of experience himself and has spent years conducting his own research. He writes and publishes widely and lectures around the world. He is certainly one of the leading experts on the subject. So with more than 20 episodes of the Urban Warfare Project podcast so far, each focusing on a particular component of or perspective on the overall subject of urban warfare, we thought it was a good time to sort of zoom out and based on John's expertise, have a more comprehensive look at the topic. A version of this conversation also ran in our flagship MWI podcast this week, so if you heard it there, thank you so much for listening. And if not, and you're looking for a podcast that tackles a wide range of topics related to modern war, please check it out wherever you get your podcasts. All right, enjoy this discussion with John Spencer. I began by asking him what made him decide to really focus on urban warfare as the subject of his research at the Modern War Institute. So we were, you know, trying to produce, you know, articles and bringing in great speakers and doing all of the great things Interviewer does now. Um, and I wrote one article about concrete in Iraq, which is just based on my own experience in, in Iraq as a company commander in 2008 and using concrete in the urban terrain, not just to stop roadside bombs, but the article pretty much breaks it down. And that article went viral. Uh, it, it, it was really big. So much so that I got calls from, you know, you name the organization, National Geographic, Yahoo News. I even got calls from operational units downrange about the use of concrete in urban combat. And that's really the start of it. Uh, there was a gap clearly in the work. And I had my own personal experiences with urban combat, you know, from my two tours in Iraq. But once I, you know, once I figured out there's this major gap and then I started started my studies, the more and more I got excited about, just like anybody else would in some academic research, that there is this major gap that is not being filled. And you know, there's the the number of people that even specialize even in urban warfare history, I can count on my hands. Um, there's you know, different pockets of excellence and there's some civilian schools, but there's really no organization out there that allows, especially within the military, because the military has had organizations but they don't, we're cyclical, you know, we rotate people out. Um, it, unless there's a, a really a, a school that owns it or a center of excellence or something, a field like this is, it'll get addressed for like a year or two. Uh, maybe there's a major conference or a major research project, and then it'll just fall off until the next time somebody. So there's really no expert. There's no long-term research program on urban warfare, even though we have it for other uh, environments or ever special, what they call special environments. So once I started down the whole, you know, got that immediate feedback from the field and then I was just addicted. You know, I think it makes sense probably just to kind of jump right in with training, uh, specifically, um, you know, one of the first articles that you wrote about urban warfare that we published at the modern war Institute mentioned the fact that we train for desert warfare in the desert. We train for jungle warfare in the jungle. We train for, you know, Arctic warfare in, in the high latitudes and cold climate and snow and ice. 
but we don't always do a good job of training for urban warfare in urban settings. And I know it's, you know, it's it's more complicated than that because there are efforts underway to try to do so, but it's just such a challenge to replicate the complexity of cities in a training environment. Can you can you kind of talk about some of those challenges? Yeah, that's that's a deep hole to go down, John. And I've learned a lot even from that um, that original article about um, our our you know, our ability to train this environment. Cause you always the whole creation of all of our combat training centers and our training environments is always, there's lots of history to it, but it's about, you know, seeing, you know, putting people through what they're going to see in combat. So they don't experience something for the first time in combat and for urban terrain that that's not, it's just not true because we, we try to create urban trains because we, we have a, I mean, there's many reasons. One of the, you know, of course you can't, you can't occupy a city because by definition, urban means not just a physical structure. So I, and I've since traveled around the world and visited multiple military urban training sites. And there's some that are better than others. And there's a few that are better than anything the United States has, but they still don't replicate urban terrain because you know, it has to be full of people. I mean, it's, it's just a reality of, of combat. I mean, it's really about battle effects too. So you can't replicate most battle effects. So right now at the, at the combat training centers, they say you can replicate about 60% of battle effects. And I guarantee that figure is not in the urban terrain. So when you enter the urban terrain, you know, all the countries, all militaries use about the same type of battle effects. You know, they use some form of laser tag or, you know, some type of automated GPS enabled type of battle simulation. But when you enter the urban terrain, it's near impossible to replicate, you know, shooting through buildings, shooting artillery into buildings, you know, all the destructive nature of urban combat that we see today. Now I say that with a caveat, of course we can replicate one element of urban warfare. And that's one we all love to train, which is to enter and clear a room. And I can do a very progressive training model to do that. And that's what I wrote about back in the beginning about you know, going from an engineer tape glass house into full live fire inner and clear room. And we're really good at that. But my, especially now my studies of the full spectrum of urban, urban operations, whether it's HADR, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief in a, in a mega city, or it's high intensity combat to retake urban terrain, you start to look at it the amount of actual replicating of battle effects or replicating of a combat environment is so small that we can replicate today. Some people think it's because it just costs too much, but I, I mean, I've pointed out that that's not necessarily the cost. It's sometimes it's the approach. It's the enemies you're presenting. It's the, you know, there's, there's lots of aspects to it, but you know, usually what people will say is that, okay, we need to go, we need to go virtual. And, and I'm just not that a fan to say that that's where we need to go. So I want to ask you, you know, some questions about the complexity of a city, um, you know, that, that arise that are sort of a function of the density of, um, people, as you mentioned, and as well as a lot of other things, but a more fundamental question, how, how should we conceptualize what a city is? What are the things that make, you know, that separate a city from a town um, or a mega city, for instance, from a large city? Yeah, great question. Um, just the term city will will take you down this crazy hole of how different groups define it differently. Usually all these structures, everything from 
village to megacity are most people use to define as some, um, some type of population number in a general term. But as you get into like more academic studies or more, more in-depth studies, they'll actually assigned um, functions. So if does it have a social and administrative function to it, uh, you know, a, a civilization living collectively, which is really interesting. If you look at, you know, villages versus cities and what the military trains for versus you look at their training sites, you know, a city by definition is usually over 50,000 people. And then you add on all those other definitions. So it has an, you know, a social organization reliant that is administrative by some government function. You know, in, in layman's term, what separates to me a city from a bunch of buildings, a lot of buildings together is that a city is a, is a social organization, right? It's a, it's a civilization that's there for a reason. Um, and most people don't look at it like that. And that's the beauty of my academic studies, even going back and looking at when I was deployed to Iraq, like why was Fallujah in Iraq a, a vibrant city despite time and where it was on the crossroads of a trading route, things like that, that get you to understand that you once you breach into urban, you're not just talking about you know lots of physical terrain, lots of people and and infrastructure, that's the Army's definition. It's called the urban trinity. People, physical structures, and then infrastructure. But that's just the military. Everybody else understands that it's, it's this social living organism. Um, and how do we replicate that? So if you look at all of our training sites, we just put up buildings. And then if we want to make it really complex, we just make the buildings more complex. That's not necessarily even getting close to urban, not by the military's definition of people, buildings, and infrastructure. Because usually we only have the buildings part. We might throw a couple of people on there and have some role players, but we're not replicating urban. Now that gets you down to, does it matter in the execution of the military mission, whatever the mission is? So usually I'll tell somebody when they ask me in-depth questions like about you know accomplishing some military objective, it's like, what is the mission? What is the context because it it has changed so much. But if you look at the types of things we replicate, it really points you to this belief that we have about urban operations, that it's just about the buildings and it's not. And that points you to the military thinking that it really drives me to continue my research is this continued thinking that combat will not happen in dense urban terrain and not in cities. It's so embedded in our culture that avoid and bypass despite all that we've done. And we've done some amazing stuff. We have some really great doctrine coming out um, soon, but we still embedded in our psychology is to avoid and bypass despite all the lessons of history on how important cities are to national security objectives, to objective campaigns. Uh, we just don't think we'll be fighting in them. Although we'll practice it a little bit, but it's it's really embedded, uh, and I have this conversation every day, all day, in different forums about why do you keep thinking that combat's going to happen in cities and it'll be terrain based, and we have to take terrain away from people. You know, why can't we just you know, develop robots and the robots or your know, bombing campaigns and things like that? You know, one of the things that struck me when we launched the Urban Warfare Project was how many people felt that way that 
no cities are if you run into a city you isolate and bypass it and move on because it it's not it's not likely to be key terrain uh there are too many risks associated with operating there so it's better just to avoid those risks and you know continue the fight elsewhere have you noticed um, you know, in the past several years, as you've been focusing on this, have you noticed a shift in maybe the collective mindset or the, you know, the balance of people who are maybe coming around to seeing urban warfare, urban operations as something that we really need to pay more attention to? Absolutely not. I think in my, my frank answer to that, I think it's going in the opposite direction. I, I think there's some, there are organizations that, that, you know, based on you know, the fighting that happened in Syria, it's still happening in Syria, fighting that happened in Iraq with the major campaigns against ISIS. There was a, a peak in the interest of urban, you know, military operations and urban terrain, as you might say, or urban operations. But as that, that continues to die down, as we continue to, to say we're, we're pivoting, although we've been doing it for about 10, 15 years towards great power competition, especially in the Pacific region, I see less and less focus or you know interest in investing in urban combat um take even take the marine corps recent canceling of the five-year uh, experimentation plan they had called project metropolis which i thought was the best thing that i'd seen in a long time a dedicated long term because you remember what i said earlier a lot of our work is short term it's you know it's short-term research such time experimentation they had a five-year experimentation plan that they decided just to close uh, I think there's less and less interest to prepare for urban combat and more and more interest in ideals about future combat that'll be that involves you know more standoff against great power competitors using uh, AIs, you know a- AI enabled um, fires, uh, more you know manned on man teaming all of it to me, all, all the talk actually drives me to think, to see more and more urban combat. And, you know, most people will get that argument that I make where, you know, as we advance in our capabilities, as peer competitors advance in capabilities, why wouldn't warfare continue to evolve, to move into the cities where it negates, doesn't eliminate, but it negates some of the powers of great power competition. You know, if if overcoming that mindset is one of the major challenges to, um, you know, developing a sort of general preparedness for urban environments, uh, then you know, I guess I want to circle back to training because that's a very practical challenge and and a major part of developing that preparedness. If you were king for a day, not necessarily king with an unlimited budget, because I think I know what you'd do then, but. What would an ideal training environment and a realistic one in terms of our budgetary constraints and, and you know, competing demands on, on, on limited resources, what would an ideal training environment look like for the Army? So I think, I think we actually have things that will work. Um, one of my articles, you, you know, I think, the, I think the big four bold moves I think the Army could make if they were dedicated to this. And um, you know, I've traveled to to the combat training centers. I think there should be a urban combat training center. Um, and you know, there's lots of people that argue against that. We can't we can't narrowly prioritize on one train. Um, but we have a, an amazing urban training site out in, at National Training Center. If I was king for a day, I would take that um, 
maybe expand it, but Hey, if you don't want to expand it, it's, it's really big, but make that the combat training, make that the rotation. So for 14 days you live in it. Um, maybe you have to fight to get into it. Uh, and, it, and it's great. It has cities that lead or, you know, small urban sites. I wouldn't call them cities that lead to the bigger city of Regis. Um, I would make a complete, and then you'd, you'd have to experiment with it to see how it works out. But you know, within our thinking and our training and our planning, we always, you know, when we exposed this back when I was on the mega cities research team, we, just from the start, we had this idea that we're going to penetrate an urban area from outside of it over land or through littoral um, from the periphery, basically, and then enter in we've discovered that that's really hard. So, but in all of our training sites and all of our, you know, especially our brigade and above training areas, we start, you know, in our training environments and we fight in them and we might have an urban day or two. If I were to be keen for day, I would make a 14 day combat training center rotation where you are living in the city, conducting operations and missions, whether it's an attack, a defense, um, you, you know, continuous operations, learning how to do force protection within urban terrain, which we learned, you know, in, in Iraq, but it's, I think it'll be a lost skill to, you know, environment awareness to humid, to SIGINT, all the things that we know we have to be able to do in urban terrain, really hard to replicate. But if we created a 14 day rotation, I think we could get really creative. And I don't think it would spend massive amounts of money because we have in our inventory we have one great site that could really do this at scale so doing that you know brigades go through the combat training centers um even 14 days in a in a city is going to give basically all soldiers within our brigade combat teams a, a pretty basic but an even um and and much more advanced than they have now sort of competence in operating in urban environments which do you think would be more effective? That a sort of general and basic fundamental level of urban competence across the board in our ground combat forces or a specialized unit that is completely man-trained and equipped for such an environment? Yeah, I think it feels like a baited question, John, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it because you know I've argued for, for both. So if, let's say you took a division, which we used to do, like the 10th Mountain Division, or the 25th ID, which is you know focused on jungle operations. Uh, I think you would get more bang for your buck, yes, if you specialized a unit. Um, probably can't do a division, but maybe a brigade or, I mean, why not a division? I mean, we have a division of solely airborne troops. We have um, divisions that are other, either legacy environment specialized or not. Um, that you would take one division and allow it to focus on urban terrain and then learn the lessons that would be shareable across the entire military. I'm not saying this would be your shock troops that you would, maybe it could be, um, that you send into an urban mission, like retake a city, a, uh, an ISIS controlled city. Um, maybe it could be, but it's just another way to get to a better level of capabilities, uh, instead of trying to relearn every time urban fights come back, if you specialize a unit, um, I think you would, the gains would be amazing in 
the whole what they call dot mill PF spectrum. Everything from the you know, the doctrine updates to the equip the the special equipment that we all know you need in this environment, just like you do in high mountain terrain versus or you know I would also throw subterranean into the urban environment, which is another gap which maybe we'll talk about, but it's a huge gap. Um, but a specialized unit, I think would get you a lot of gains. What the CTC does though, it gets you, you know, a shot in the arm to the army where everybody is getting some type of the, the learning and awareness. And then we're such a rotational force too. So the problem with specializing a unit is kind of like with the regionally aligned force ideal back in the day is that, yeah, but then you rotate those people two other units within a year, two, three years, whatever it is. So I, I'm sure your, one of your next questions will be, what about the school? Which is just another one of the Army's ways of inculcating the military with a knowledge in warfighting in an environment. And that's the other gap is we, we, the the craziness that we do not have an institutional stool that a school that specializes in urban operations. Yeah, you know, I I had a follow up question uh, to that, but but because you mentioned the school, let's let's touch on that. You have called for um, for a school and a research center. What in your mind would that look like? So, um, kind of like historical case studies, I think a great example is just to look at the Vermont National Guard, which is the army proponent for mountaineering, uh, mountain warfare. Um, they just knocked down a building and they're creating a new one. Um, they were a group of people that came back um, and, and created a, a specialized school based on people who had just experienced mountain warfare, and it grew and grew until it's it's now the place. If anybody wants to go learn mountain warfare, you go to the Vermont National Guard, which has Army Executive Agency to teach active and guard and reserve in that specialty skill. That's the model I think that could be used. Take like the Indiana National Guard, which has an amazing small, you know, company size urban training center, but to create, you know, a school, a headquarters and a staff of instructors. Um, and that's really our gap. Our gap is not only in, you know, a physical site, which most people want to focus on, you know, like the training centers. But even when you go to a training center, when a unit's rotating through you know, the OCs, OTCs, whatever you want to call them now, they're great and they're amazing. And man, have I had such respect in interviewing all of them. But when you build a school, like you know, a mountaineering school, a ranger school, whatever, you become, and we learned this at West Point, the only, one of the ways you learn mastery by the Army's definition is by being able to teach something to somebody else. So by creating a school, then it 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 makes you have to, create masters in whatever it is they're teaching because they're they're researching it they're learning it they're developing programs of instruction so a school to me would would have to have a physical site of course but it's it's that cadre of experts that you build then that would train the trainers which which is the army way which is why it's so crazy that we've never done it for urban warfare We've all, we've done it for jungle warfare, although the school for jungle operations, you know, was in Panama for a while. It closed down. And then the 25th ID, which is a unit-based initiative, which I don't agree with, stood it back up. And now they run people through because they're kind of specialized in the environment and anybody can go to it. There's a lot of different models, John, but I personally, of course, would want a institutionally army headquartered school. 
um, maybe given to like the Indian National Guard so they could it be it'd make it easier to man and maintain the expertise, which we've seen other models of like the the National Guard pre-ranger course in Georgia is the best probably in the Army because it's just a, a different model you know, back it with people, you know, in an ideal, I'd also want a research arm of that, you know, researchers, people dedicated to urban operations. And that's the craziness. Um, and the gap that we try to fill, if you, if you ask me, okay, who within the U S army is an expert or a researcher who is allowed to study urban operations from history to current doctrine? I just can't think of any. And the, one of the reasons you, you can't is because there's no school where that person would reside. There's no office uh, where he would reside. I know of two, two instructors, one at the command and staff college and one at the work college that teach a urban warfare elective. They're just, you know, they did their research in urban warfare and they, they provide that elective if students are interested in it, but there's no mandatory classes. But if you develop this school, then I would put a research arm in there and then put experts not only in teaching it, but the people that are researching it. I think the Vermont example is, um, is a really interesting one. I went through the army mountain warfare school, um, years ago and I found it fascinating because you had instructors who are primarily national guard soldiers, although on AGR status. So they're basically activated for three years at a time. Many of them have been doing it for a long time. What you avoid is having people cycle in and out every couple of years. So some of these people have been instructing there for five, 10 years or more. Uh, and what they do is they would take a couple, they would teach a couple of rotations of, they had the summer and um, summer and winter military mountaineering schools and the summer and winter assault climber courses. And they would teach a couple of rotations of that. And then they'd go off for a couple of weeks and they would attend like the, the French military mountaineering school or the Chilean military mountaineering school. And then they'd come back. So they were constantly learning too. And you know, that, by using that model, you can establish um, sort of a, a more stable center of, of of knowledge and learning. But also imagine if some of those instructors are are teaching courses to army and or joint students uh, and then going off and doing terrain walks in cities around the world, going off and conducting interviews, going off and learning and then coming back and having that feed into the curriculum so that it's a constantly refined sort of um, method of learning and teaching. I think that that's fascinating. Well, I do want to circle back, uh, since you mentioned the 25th in that in, in your last answer, I want to circle back to that um, because, you know, like you said, the 25th is is sort of aligned against um, the jungle warfare. The the 82nd is obviously an airborne division. The 10th Mountain Division historically has been allied, aligned against mountain warfare, cold weather warfare. And even just... Um, Making that decision to align a formation against a problem set is a signal that we think this is important. Um, it strikes me that aligning any any sort of unit, whether it's a brigade or if you're fortunate enough to to do it with a division against the urban environment, sends a signal to including you know competitors and adversaries that we think that this is important. Do you think that? Uh, and I know you studied this a little bit. Do you think that our potential adversaries see? Uh, urban as an American weakness. So that gets you to the state actor versus non-state actor. I think that um, any non-state actor, of course, is going to see it as a weakness in where the chosen battlefield that they want to fight in. Why? 
because they'll never compete with a U.S. military in any other environment. They don't have a chance in any other environment. Um, even in the urban terrain, um, it, depending on, how, on what type of fighting you're talking about, um, their chances are are, are are low. But you know, all war is politics. So if you know if the political political objectives are what is about, and that's where you you. I always get into these strategy debates with people about urban combat and why would they do that? Cause it, you know, it's especially going to a defensive, um, what political objective are they trying to achieve? And then, but then you, of course, modern day information warfare, if I'm just trying to sway the international community and I'll bring out all these examples of where in urban terrain, of course, that's, that's to the enemy's advantage right the the narrative the support of the population the support of the local government it it all goes down in the city it it isn't going down army versus army in the open train earlier you mentioned the dot mil pf spectrum or the dot mil pfp spectrum um which is something that i think most of our listeners will be uh very familiar with uh for those that don't, it's just this framework, um, really kind of an analytical framework for, for lack of a better way of describing it, for thinking about um, problems and solutions and their various components. Uh, it stands for what doctrine, organization, training, material, leadership and education, personnel, and facilities, and policy. Um, if we could address our... Uh, our, our gaps, our you know relative lack of preparedness for operating in urban environments, on in just one of those areas, which do you think would be most impactful? Training for sure. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great, a, a tough question. So the one that I think is the the biggest gap is the expertise. Um, so it's outside of the, almost outside of. I mean, I, I guess you where you'd put in the, in the dot mil PF spectrum. Um, it's not in facilities. I mean, I, I really think it's an expertise problem because you, who's advising your doctrine, who, who's advising organizational training, what expertise do we have to make those recommendations based on a long view based on likely, I mean, a lot of this gets back to just because I've studied force management and force structure and I've studied the dot mil PF spectrum and the JSIDs and all these processes back on a different research project. It all comes back to the, what scenario do you believe, what are the most dangerous combat scenarios you see for U.S. national interests um, or what are the most likely that you see? It, it, it always comes back, John, and, and it's not part of dot mil PF, expertise, like who are your experts and are we developing experts are do we learn from the past are we learning from today and that's why you know uh, i have the dream job here at the modern war institute that i get to you know, go out during the summers and go visit recent urban battles or i get to go down my own line of research and find these fascinating examples that i think are really applicable to the military today um whether that's you know depending on the mission so it, that's why this, this is always gets hard to talk about. Is like, what do you think is the most likely scenario for U.S. military operations in the next, in the near term? I really don't like involving in, you know, thinking about 40 years from now. Uh, I'm talking about today. And that's where I get kind of frustrated. Like, yeah, but okay, you're fighting in Syria today. 
what type of urban combat dot mil pf spectrum assets are we using to maintain our competitive advantage you know that kind of stuff i mean I I usually like to when I really get into big arguments and I start to get a little frustrated. I always throw back the army's stated mission to people. The army mission, literally from their own website, says it's about a, defeating enemy ground forces and indefinitely seizing and controlling those things an adversary prizes most: its land, its resources, and its population. What about that statement does not lead you to urban combat? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, a really great point. You know, um, you know, kind of circling back to a question I asked earlier about, you know, how we define and conceptualize cities. Um, you know, I personally don't really like any fixation on megacities because I think it, uh, I understand it's useful um, to sort of define something that's at the extreme end of large cities uh, that necessarily brings with it more complexity. But I, I worry that it creates a sort of, artificial distinction that if there's a city that has 9,999,999 people and somebody has a baby that suddenly that that city becomes more complex or more complicated and, and needs to be treated a little bit differently. However, if we do sort of accept that the, the small subset of cities that are largest and most dense and most complex, most complicated that we might as well call mega cities, um, they do bring with them a range of challenges and have some vulnerabilities too. You mentioned earlier that because you've got this dream job as the chair of urban warfare studies at MWI, you get to spend time during the summer going and visiting some of these places. I know a couple of years ago, you went to Mumbai uh, to study the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai. Uh, was that a particularly illuminating experience? Absolutely. It was mind blowing on many levels. One, you know, you know, this all started and I just failed to mention it. So my, urban warfare research kind of started before the, the modern war institute the job i had right before i came to uh, west point um, was part of the chief of staff of the army strategic studies group in 2014 which for the full year used mega cities as its uh, the framework for its research agenda and that's really the first time i had heard the term you know which just means 10 million people or more um, but it also was the first time I saw the crazy organizational resistance to the term of, as like this magic boogeyman of, well, we will, we would never do that. We're not going to do that. That's, that's, you know, they, we, you know a, a, a mega city would eat an army for lunch is usually what I get. And I have various senior army leaders um, to this day still say that, you know, it's just, just not feasible. We're not going to send the army in there. Like that's not history. And I didn't know that the world was full of no-go zones that the U S military would say that, yeah, we, we can't do that. So Mumbai was fascinating because I'd already studied mega cities you know, for multiple years. Um, I knew about the 2008 attack, but getting on the ground and walking a city of 18 million was, you know, I'd been in New York city, but this is different. It, it was I mean, it's just so life-changing because you get on the ground here and, and you see how, depending on where you're standing on the terrain, it isn't as overwhelming as you thought it was. But also to study that that specific attack where 10 guys, and I usually say 10 privates, 10 guys was like six six months, maybe longer, it's debatable, of experience, took down a megacity within hours by attacking the what we always say the flows of the city so they the if if the listeners don't know about the 2008 mumbai attacks or 10 terrorists from pakistan you know hit 
about four sites simultaneously within the city, but they're very highly reconned, um, pre-selected sites that are meant to create chaos, mass chaos across the city and make the city itself and the security apparatus think that the entire city was in t- under attack when it was literally just 10, 10 guys in groups, in small groups of two to four men uh, attacking sites. But it, it overwhelmed the city as you think about these cities full of this many people, how they can so easily be disrupted um, and the chaos it causes when you have a single disruption. And this gets you to like resiliency of cities and can they, they can they withstand shocks and everything. But we, you know, we went there, we walked the ground with cadets and, and other researchers and, um, and, and studied every attack and the location such as the train station and how, amount of chaos it caused, but then how it sees the city, how the different approaches to responding to a sh- active shooter in one spot, but how about in four different spots? It, it, it was just amazing, a, a really a life-changing experience. But what also you're digging deeper on how they did that, that it was those, those guys, those 10 privates, I say, but they also had an earpiece. So they were being remote controlled from Pakistan by highly specialized military personnel, giving them direct orders by the minute of what to do, but also watching international news because we live in a world where military action will happen almost, not almost, in this case, in live feed, in live updates happening across social media uh, and Twitter that the people who are controlling the weapons remotely controlling through the earpieces were watching those live feeds and making immediate adjustments that allowed it to go on for for three days really before they brought it to an end. You know, you often hear the, you know, it's, it's sort of a canard, um, but this notion that, well, a mega city or a large city would, you know, swallow an entire brigade or entire division or more. And so the, you know, the, the natural, uh, sort of follow on thought process to that as well. It would require operating in cities will necessarily require huge formations and lots of people, which for some missions is probably true. Uh, but for other missions and the army does have a full range of them. I wonder if there are actually maybe lessons in the Mumbai experience that a small unit that is uh, specifically trained for an environment could actually, and granted, you know, they're, they were, you know, intent on sowing chaos and destruction. And that's a pretty simple mission, frankly, um, much more simple than many of the ones that say the U.S. Army would have. But do you see that the the problems that a city poses as ones that need to be met primarily with large numbers of forces, or is this very much sort of a small unit environment? It's always going to be a small unit environment just based on how it breaks apart units. So that's why you need better and better professional organizations that can deal with the com- the complexity and the emergency of these situations it all it's all about context and we could talk about okay wh- what's the mission um mumbai really teaches you how it, it is a it does become a small unit action despite the magnitude of the organization, that's where the whole, it takes an army to do it. Like, well, what's the mission? What's going on? And can the terrain, the terrain can still be manipulated in a mega city. It can't be controlled. And that's another kind of myth about, 
urban terrain is our our want to control it or you know isolate the objective and cut it off and that's just not that's not a reality of the world today and especially about urban terrain but you but there is manipulating of terrain in the immediate sense of small unit actions and controlling blocks and buildings and um whether you can maneuver to the site is huge in in dense urban terrain and it was huge in a mega city and that's where it really if you think you could you're going to if your plan of response is to send a ground assault from point a to point b during rush hour it's just just not going to happen but you have no air assets which was a, was a during mumbai was a big thing and one of their solutions was just to buy more helicopters but but arguably they didn't buy the you know the maintenance or the gas or all the stuff that takes to helicopter in a small unit of action to get to the site um it, it's it's a large topic but um it's it's about understanding it's to me it's always about understanding i always put my research into two buckets understanding urban environments and understanding how to operate in urban environments a lot of times we we only want to understand we only want to do the the second part which is understanding the military mission and just it just happens to be on urban terrain right so the 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 principles of an assault will work on urban terrain just like they'll work on the woods and, and i try to argue hard that yes but the there are so many aspects of understanding the urban environment that are going to make the complexity of that thinking almost unravel or the 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 damage that's caused to your casualties uh civilian casualties to political will which is people always want to just assume away i think you and i did that article about so you think you won't fight in a megacity we always want to assume away political will to continue military operations. So, you know, military planners will say, you know, okay, if I was given this mission, it, you know, I, the assumption is that I, I can go in high explosive. I can prep, you know, prep the objective area with high explosives. I can send in this mechanized force. And, but, you know, history shows you that political will still matters and constraints on military force has almost been a has been the most predominant feature of urban combat that I can really point to is that we always go in with these um, constraints on force. But under if you understand the environment more, the likelihood that you'll be better at operating in it will be much much more. But we're usually and you you can appreciate this as an intel officer. This gets you into thinking that we're an enemy centric fighting force. I'll add in there, we're an enemy-centric maneuver fighting force. Well, when you get into the city, the city is an actor in this game. It's 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 like, it's not just, you know, red versus blue. Now you have the city. It's 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 an actor in this equation. So I, I don't think you can, in a major urban operation, context always matters. You have to give me the mission that you can just focus on the enemy and not focus on understanding in real time the city and the fact that you may have to use something other than maneuver warfare against that enemy. Yeah, when you mentioned um, that, you know, you kind of mentioned the dichotomy, the these two parallel things. One is understanding cities and one is understanding how to operate in cities. I immediately kind of thought, well, the first one of those sounds like a, a two shop thing. The second yeah. part is a three shop thing. Um, and maybe we do need to do a better job of 
you know, sort of uh, going down those paths in parallel and and fusing them together and not just leaving behind um, a big part of it and focusing on the the sort of tactical approach to uh, solving these 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 military problems in in urban terrain. So some of the challenges that you've mentioned very much would require a sort of army enterprise level solution or even DOD enterprise level solution. Absent that, at least in the near term, um, you know, if, if if many of our listeners are in uniform, um, you know, many in the U.S. Army or elsewhere in the U.S. military and in, and in allied militaries as well. If you, you know, if you could kind of speak to some of the leaders at the company and battalion level um, who do want to kind of do their part to better equipping the force for these challenges, besides listening to your podcast, besides reading everything that you write, everything that we publish um, through the Urban Warfare Project, what else would you sort of recommend? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I, I do a lot of, and, and, and I'm so happy that you know, people are interested. I do a lot of requests for like unit based, um, uh, LPDs and things like that. Like, okay, how could we do things better? I mean, first thing is, is it, even I have to go back and just continually read the doctrine. We have good doctrine. Um, we, we honestly do. I I argue sometimes I've interviewed people and and had they read it, not poking anybody in the eyes, but we have to read our doctrine. Um, and it will help the starting point. And then I think the next one is we don't need, you know, in order to continue the conversation, especially in the force that has to train for multiple environments, you can do tabletop war games um, on urban operations, given a mission under these constraints, and then talk through all the staff functions, talk through the scenarios, and it will create amazing things that you don't necessarily think about. Or you know, when you're under the heat and flare of a your combat training center, uh, it's, it, you just don't have the time to stop and ask the questions or stop and um, maybe reference some, where there are gaps in information. I, mean, I love the, the, the basically wargaming aspect of this. I just did one with a, a UK element, which is, you know, if I was positioned behind enemy lines in urban terrain and I had to defend it, that, that one scenario gives me so much that I, we can work with and we don't have to even hit the terrain. Okay, what kind of doctrine do I have for defending urban terrain? Uh, and then we talk through like what kind of capabilities we might have with us, engineering capabilities, maybe we don't. You know, okay, let's think about how it's happened in the past. How did they use the environment in, in, in the defense? Um, and going through our own doctrinal frameworks, we applied against urban terrain you know, what are we thinking about digging tank ditches or what are we thinking about taking away major avenues of approach? Um, a lot of these things, we just don't get to practice in our normal training methodologies What this, that we're preparing for that can be done and incorporated into our leader professional development, wargaming and uh, bringing people together, talk about all these enablers that we would need for any of these situations uh, that I think could happen more. That, that's my one recommendation outside of you're listening to the podcast. Well, John, you know, thank you very much. 
you know, we are at the Modern War Institute, I think, pretty committed to um, urban warfare as a, as an area of focus, committed to advancing the study of it and, and, and sort of our collective knowledge of it. And you have very much um, spearheaded and, and led that effort. Um, so I want to thank you for that. Great work with the podcast and, uh, and thanks for uh, a, a great conversation. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.